you know, as I preached to you for the first time, it reminds me of a story a friend of mine told me. A friend of mine was going to preach in his first church for the first time ever, and he was a wee bit nervous. So he got up into the pulpit and he stood behind the pulpit. It was one of those solid wooden things so nobody could see his knees knocking together. And he started. And in the first 10 minutes, he stumbled a wee bit. He got lost. He got confused. But he, he kept going. And after 10 minutes, somebody in the back there about where Owen sitting and shouted, Hallelujah! The guy thought, this is great. I must be doing something. So he went on for another 10 minutes. As he went on for another 10 minutes, he grew more confident. He grew in stature. And the guy at the back again shouted, Hallelujah! He thought, this is brilliant, and, and revival's breaking out, so we give them another 10 minutes. And the guy at the back put his hands up and said, hallelujah. So after the service, when it all calmed down again, he went to the back and said to the man, thank you, brother, for your encouragement. The brother looked kind of sheepish at him and said, encouragement? He said, you were the man that was shouting hallelujah. No, son, I was saying that'll do you. <laughs> so please, no hallelujahs this morning. assumptions. Assuming we hear certain things or assuming we know certain things play a large part of our lives, do they not? When we get up in the morning, we assume the heating's going to come on, we assume the car's going to work, we assume certain things, and we don't give them a minute's thought. We assume certain relationships, we, we assume that things will go grand. But assumptions can also be misleading, can they not? And as the wee man and the wee preacher there found out, it can be quite embarrassing. And one of the things that has always been a wrestle for mine is the danger of assuming who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. There's some things we don't want to take an assumption. There's some things that are just far too important to assume. And so as I start the sermon this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is and why? Who do you think Jesus is and why? Many people have asked that question, and Jesus himself posed that question to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi when he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Jesus himself highlights this as an important question. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher of the 20th century, too, said, the most important question we can ask or answer for not only this life, but eternity, is who Jesus is. And here we see in verses 28 to 40, and thank you, Jill, for the reading, by the way. When Jill was come up, I said, don't worry, Jill, I'll understand you better than me. So thank you, Jill, for the reading. In verses 28 to 40, here we see Firstly, the unexpected king. The unexpected king. Recently, I was traveling through Edinburgh Airport, and as I was standing at the departure gate, there was this commotion that was coming closer and closer to me. And it's discovered that I had actually put myself in the path of Nicola Sturgeon. And now she's a wee woman, but she's a determined wee woman, and she was coming straight at me. And she was coming back from the queen's funeral, so she had her hat in her bag, and she had her feet wrapped up so that her shoes didn't get damaged. And as she was coming straight at me, not only was Nicola Sturgeon coming at me, but so were five Scottish police officers who were big men. And behind them was a whole trail of politicians, and about 20 people bustled Mrs. Sturgeon through the airport. I moved out of the way. <laughs> it was a wise decision, those Glasgow ladies. We expect that from great leaders, but don't we? If Rishi Sunak turned up at, Coast, at, at, at LBC this morning, if he... <laughs> 
if Rishi Sunak turned up at LBC this morning, he would arrive with Range Rovers and police cars. We expect our leaders to turn up with style, with pomp, befitting their status. Jesus has been going around Galilee. And from John's gospel, we know that he is the son of the living God. The son of the creator of the universe, the one who spun stars into being, who upholds it by the bare power of his word. And yet he walks around Galilee with sandal feet. He assorts with tax collectors. He assorts with the fishermen. He assorts with what the Pharisees called the sinners, the down and outs. Luke's gospel especially majors in this. He doesn't make a fuss. And he blesses little children. I love that scene. It's a beautiful scene. I love dedications. Thank you guys for asking me to do it. I love dedications. Jesus says, do not hinder the little ones from coming to me. He is an unexpected king. He doesn't demand pomp. He doesn't demand circumstance. In fact, he says he has come not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. I don't expect King Charles to say that on his coronation vows. I don't expect the American president to say that. But Jesus is our unexpected king. And the crowds have been excited about him. Rumors have spread. Folk in John's gospel before Palm Sunday, we hear of how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And I love that scene, don't you? Where Jesus, who in a few seconds knows he's going to raise his friend from the dead, still weeps at the grave. And then when he says, Lazarus, come forth, some commentator said he had to preface the command with Lazarus because all the graves in Jerusalem would have emptied. And as he builds up the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is steep. It's steeper than the steep hill in Lincoln, which is pretty steep. And as he goes up the side of Olives facing Jerusalem, he sends these two disciples ahead, go and get a colt for me. I need to ride it into Jerusalem. And in fairness to the disciples, I mean, I've been asked to do some crazy things in my time, but go and borrow somebody's donkey is not one of them. The Lord needs it. And there's symbolism behind this. If you go back into the Old Testament, especially 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you'll find that Solomon, when he was crowned king, was sent out on top of David's mule. And Jehu, when he was crowned king as well, was sent riding on a mule, and the people would put the coats before them on the ground. Because in Middle Eastern thought, when somebody arrived on a donkey... It symbolized peace, not war. If they arrived in a horse or a stallion or a steed, trouble was coming. This unexpected king comes on a donkey. In fact, it's even worse than a donkey. He comes on a colt. He comes on a baby donkey that has never been ridden before. It's not exactly a limo, is it? It's not even a Land Rover Defender. Which are great cars, by the way. He comes... He arrives, and as the crowds get excited, they start celebrating. They start crying out, and you see the palm branches being waved. Palm branches were the symbol. Like Scotland has the thistle, England has the rose. The Israeli people had the palm branches as a symbol of national liberation. They assumed that Jesus was coming on his donkey, in peace perhaps, but he was coming as a king to kick out the Romans. He was coming to liberate the nation politically, socially. And so they get excited. They assume they know what Jesus is about. They wave their palm branches. They throw the coats on the road. The scene must have been absolute chaos. If you've ever been to the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, it is very tight. It's very narrow. The crowds are crying out. Jesus is riding on this donkey. And even in their assumption, 
they get glimmers of the truth. Verse 38 there, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. That's lifted from Psalm 118. Hosanna, Hoshiana, Lord, save us. He would save them, but not as how they assumed. This unexpected king who comes in humility and gentleness, who comes in peace, is the one who would save them. Is the one who would bring peace in heaven and his glory down, but not in the way they think, not in the manner they assumed. Jesus does not come to set up a political kingdom or an earthly kingdom. He comes to set up something far more enduring, far deeper, far real. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is humble, this unexpected king. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you are tired? Nudge the person who's fallen asleep beside you there. I was um, in my home church, there was this mom, and she had five kids. And they were the loveliest kids, but they were the sort of kids that wake up at five o'clock in the morning and don't stop until midnight, not once. They're like the Duracell bunny. And she came out of the Sunday school one day and she had a kid hanging from her ear, but the other kid had pulled her hair, so it balanced her out. Two kids were around her hips and one was bouncing in her arm. And I said to them, aren't the wee darlings? She said, how many do you want? <laughs> Life can be hard. Life can be tiring. Life could be frustrating. You could say, hey, amen, it's okay. This humble king comes to give us rest. Many people think of Jesus, he comes to add more and more burdens to our shoulders, more and more weight to us, more and more ways. But no, he comes in a powerful way to serve us, to save us, to give us rest for our souls. He is gentle and lowly in heart. Isn't that beautiful? And that is Charles Spurgeon commenting in this passage. He says, that is the only time in the Bible we actually get a glimpse of what Jesus' heart, or how Jesus, sorry, describes his own heart. How do you describe yourself? Don't tell me. I'll look up your Facebook profiles and see if they match the truth. But we describe ourselves, we, we pick the things that are greatest about us, don't we? That's just natural. We do that. You know, if you're going on the dating websites, what do you put? Gosh, good sense of humor. I don't go on dating websites, by the way. I just <laughs> don't call a leadership team meeting. Jesus, when he describes himself, this is how he describes himself, that he is gentle and lowly in heart. When somebody's hurting, when somebody's tired and weary, when somebody has been kicked around and battered, what is the last thing you want to hear? Well, I told you so, didn't I? Jesus doesn't do that. And that's why all the way through Luke's gospel, you find people who have been kicked around by the world, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the drug addicts, the sinners, are drawn to him in a very powerful way because he is gentle and lowly in heart. This unexpected king who is full of indescribable majesty is still the humble king. Philippians 2 he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and became a servant. 
And it's a great sadness to me that in my own life and in some of our churches that we aren't marked by that gentle humbleness. The unexpected king. This flows into verse 41 and 44. The broken-hearted king. Jesus twice in Scripture is recorded that he weeps. I've mentioned already as he stands beside his friend's grave, Lazarus' grave. Now, I know we've all got a stiff upper lip, most of us. We're very reserved, aren't we? If, if our house burnt down and somebody stole the dog and the car ran away, we would be asked, how are you doing today? Well, things could be better. That's our response, isn't it? And then when things go really well, the house is rebuilt, we get the car back, everything's great. Well, it's been a good day today. That's us, isn't it? That's British culture. That's us. When it says Jesus weeps here, he sobs. He would be embarrassing to us in our culture because the tears flow. Have you ever wept so much that you struggled to breathe? That's how Jesus weeps when he looks at Jerusalem. This humble king, this unexpected king, looks over the city which should be his, which should be his by possession, his by divine right, and he weeps. Calvin, commenting on this passage, says he wished his coming to be salvation for all. He sees this city in rebellion, in hardness against him, this city that will reject him, this city that will crucify him, and instead of raging against it, instead of denouncing it, he weeps over it. That's love. Here is love fast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. Jesus' heart is so full of love for his lost people. Fred, if you're here this morning and your image of God is a harsh and cold tyrant, Jesus is the face of God to you. He is the heart of God revealed. He loves you. He yearns for you to come to him. It may sound twee nowadays, but years ago we used to sing that song, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. Calling for me. Calling for you. See how he waits in the heavenly portals, watching and waiting. Waiting for me. Waiting for you. I love that image of the prodigal son, where the father is watching from afar off. Isn't that great how the father keeps watching day by day, week by week? When he sees the son in the distance, he goes running to him. Old men didn't run in that culture. It was undignified. You'd have to lift up your skirts. They had worse, they, you'd have to lift up your skirts. Old men glided across rooms in those days. He runs to his son and embraces him, the smelly pig farming son. Luke, 10, Luke 19, verse 10. After Zacchaeus was saved, the wee wee man... Jesus describes his mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He weeps over Jerusalem because in AD 70, Jerusalem would be destroyed. Titus, the Roman emperor of the day, would come in the first Jewish-Roman war, and he would wipe out Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that one million people would be killed. And if you go to Rome to this very day, there's the Arch of Titus, which shows you the sack of Jerusalem. It shows you the menorah being carried away by soldiers. The place was devastated. Jesus didn't want that for them. He wanted peace. He wanted wholeness. He wanted restoration. He wanted them to return to the God who had saved them, loved them, created them. And so it is today. We think we know better than God. That's the heart of sin, that we know better than God. That we 
remember that teenage skit, was it? I can't remember the name of the guys. Richard and I were trying to talk about this last night. Remember that teenager who would just throw everything, what was he called? Harry Enfield? No, that's not it. This is me showing my pre, pre-Christian days. Kevin. Thank you, Marion. Kevin, you teach an experience there with Kevin's, where everything was just awful and he wouldn't listen to his parents. That's us. God is good. God is unexpected. God is gentle. God is kind. Here we see Jesus breaking his heart over Jerusalem, yearning for his people to come back to him. God desires that all should be saved and that none should perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the heart of our God. The unexpected king, the brokenhearted king. Lastly, verses 45 to 47, the holy king. The holy king. Jesus then goes into the temple. And he goes into the temple, this place that should be the house of prayer. This place where people should meet with the living God. This place where lives could be transformed and he sees nothing but corruption. He sees nothing but double worship. The quotes there in verse 46 come from Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11 where Jeremiah denounces the people of Israel. He says to the people of Israel, look, you guys claim to follow God, but your lives are completely contrary to it. You're thieving, you're stealing, you're committing adultery, you're murdering, and then you come to the temple and say, it's okay, God's rescued us. No. Those double-hearted standards, God sees through that. God is an immensely holy God, and Jesus is holy. He is gentle, he is humble, but he is also holy, beautifully holy. In the Gospels, we see that scene of the transfiguration where Jesus goes up the mountain and Peter comes with, I love Simon Peter, by the way, don't you? It makes me feel better. Peter is the first Northern Irishman in the Bible. Every time he opens his mouth, he puts his foot in it. Peter says, Lord, should we make you tense? And Jesus said, no, no, no tense. Moses and Elijah are there, but they're all looking to Jesus. And as Jesus is transfigured, his glory, his holiness, his beauty breaks out. Isaiah chapter 6, the God of the Bible, as Isaiah, one of the leaders of Israel of the day, a good man, stands in the presence of a holy God, cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jesus is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate hypocrisy or double standards. That's why the Pharisees and him never got on. The Pharisees were all about image and maintaining an image and a dignity. They were whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, they looked great. They looked holy. But inwardly, they were rotten. Jesus comes and clears the temple, reminding us that he is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. That he cannot overlook sin. That he must deal with sin. So how do these three fit together? How do these three find resolution? The unexpectedly humble king the compassionate king who yearns that people who are broken and lost and hurting, people who had rebelled against him would come and be reconciled to him, and yet in his holiness, he must bring justice. How does this come together? The answer, my friends, is behind me, the cross. In the cross, we see the fullest and greatest display of the love of God for the world. Paul tells us in Romans, no greater proof of God's love exists Christ Jesus died on the cross. We see in his humility as he is scorned by his own creation, as crown of thorns is placed in his head mocking him, as Roman petty thug soldiers spit on him. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't call down fire from heaven like Elisha. 
he endures because of his compassion. It wasn't the nails, Martin Luther said, that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. And he knew the only way of salvation, the only way to deal with sin in love was that he bore it for us. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Humility, compassion, holiness. Come to seek and save the lost. This is who Jesus is. And one of the things I struggle with in preaching is how could you describe somebody like that? This is who Jesus is. The Savior, the King, the Holy One, the coming Judge. And this is why He came. To offer salvation to all who through faith and repentance would turn from their sin and trust in Him. No preconditions. No preconditions. They hung on his words. Five days later, they would hang him to a tree. But this wasn't because of human malice that triumphed. It was the will of God that Christ should go to the cross in love to redeem and save all who would trust in him and follow him. Friend, this morning, that is who Jesus is to you. Will you trust him and follow him? Would you give your heart and your life to him? Dear Christian friend, if you're here and you've followed him for many years, don't slip into the comfortable habit. I do this myself of assuming we know everything about Jesus. Assuming we know what he's like. He constantly surprises us, doesn't he? Refresh your focus on him. And let's remember that after they hung him to that tree three days later, he would rise again and triumph forevermore. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, the Bible, the living, inspired, unfailing, unerring word of God to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who comes and helps the weakness of preaching to try and push forth the beauty of our Jesus. And Lord, I pray this morning that anything from the speaker that was not helpful would simply fall to the wayside, but that you would have been seen. That for those of us who have followed you for weeks or years would remember your gentle and lowly heart. That for those who are weary and tired this day, you would give them rest. They would rejoice that they are redeemed, not through what they can do, but by what you have done on that cross. And if there's any here this morning, Lord, who do not know you, May your good spirit strive with them until they surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will deal with them harshly, but will tenderly receive, redeem, and restore. Oh, to you, Lord Jesus, be all the glory and the praise forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.